everyone, and welcome to the JCM Prepare the Way podcast. My name is Carol Urbis, and sadly, I am missing Mallory today. Her family got hit with the stomach bug, so I am flying solo, and I hope you all don't mind about that. And if you are new to our podcast, Mallory and I are actually part of a ministry called Jeremiah's Call Ministries, or JCM for short, and we are based out of the beautiful foothills of Colorado. And we both are coming to you from different generational perspectives, and we are going to be talking in our podcasts about biblical and cultural topics from those perspectives. So today is actually a great day to tune in, even though she's not here, but a great day to tune in because we're talking about the Bible. And I know I keep saying we, and (laughs) because I keep thinking she's here with me, but she helps me prepare these things. So this is a team effort. So I'll probably say we quite a bit in this podcast, even though she's not with me. But the question comes up often, and maybe you have asked yourself this question, why believe the Bible? That seems to be a question many Christians are actually struggling with today. And it actually makes me think of Pontius Pilate, you know, that Roman official who um, was questioning Jesus and interrogating him. And he famously ends their exchange by asking, what is truth? Here we are 2,000 years later, and we are still wrestling with that question. So I'm pretty excited about this episode. You know, I think if I, if you don't mind me beginning here, I think in the West, we take this book for granted, the Bible. We've always had access to it, or we know that we can just easily purchase it somewhere, right? Or maybe you grew up in a home where you had a big family Bible on your table, I know I did. And so the Bible's always been accessible for us. We've never had to smuggle it in, or we've never had to hide it like they do in places like China or other countries in South America or parts of the Middle East, where people actually risk their lives to bring someone a Bible or to keep a Bible in a home. We've never had to experience that. And so what we want to try to do in this podcast is really help you build your faith in why you can believe this book and why this book or collection of books actually should be your greatest joy, why it should become your favorite book to read every day. Let me start by just some practical things. First of all, the Bible is a Middle Eastern book. It's a Middle Eastern book written by Middle Eastern people in a Middle Eastern country. And a majority of what, of where this whole entire setting of the Bible takes place is in the land of Israel. With the exception of a time in Egypt, with the exception of sharing stories like in Nineveh, everything that you read in this book is taking place in the land of Israel. Now, let me also say this. Um, I learned this years ago, and I just love passing this on, but that word Bible is actually a plural word, and it comes from the Latin word biblia, which means books, not book. So the Bible is actually a library of books. And in this library, you will have history books, you'll have law books, you can have song books. And the beautiful thing about all these books is how they relate together. 
And these books are actually sacred writings that reveal not only the majesty of God and who he is, but they reveal his nature through his names. They reveal his nature through his works and his nature through his words. And it also reveals his love for his people. And as a history book, it's unique because, first of all, it's provable history. It chronicles the times of kings and wars and other nations, but also empires. And it does this through the variety of books that are found within it. And I don't know if you realize this, but when you study the Bible in depth, you realize that the neighboring nations surrounding Israel feared the God of Israel. Whether it was through their own eyewitness experiences or accounts or through the accounts of others, these neighboring countries feared the God of Israel because he was a God that intervened in the life of Israel in unique ways, ways that went way beyond weather, things that they thought their gods controlled, such as when an angel smited an army of 185,000 men, that kind of stuff. So this book is unique. And something else about this book to just keep in mind is that it reveals something no other religions offer. It reveals God's plan of redemption for mankind. I don't know if you realize that. All other religions are works-based. There is a what must we do to please God. Whereas in the God of the Bible came to us, starting with Abraham, calling him out of what is now modern-day Iraq to make a promise and a covenant with him that he would give him all this land. And then continuing with Moses, when after the exodus out of Egypt and creating a tabernacle where God could come and commune with his people. So throughout history, God always wanted to commune and be with his people. Just like when he came down on Mount Sinai, God wants to be with his people. Well, this ultimate fulfillment came through Jesus Christ. And so God is was always and is always about providing a way for all of us out of our messy, sinful lives to have fellowship and a relationship with a holy God. So it's quite a remarkable book. Now, there's two words that you probably will hear often as it relates to the Bible. People will say, they'll call it the infallible word of God, or sometimes people will talk about the legitimacy of scriptures, right? So let's just get an understanding of what those two words mean, just so that if those ever come up, you know what they mean. When someone's talking about the infallible word of God, for example, consider the words flawless or uh, foolproof or accurate. It's unfailing. So to be infallible, if the Bible's infallible, it's basically telling us that the book is true. And no matter how many times people have tried to prove that it's not, or that it's just like any other holy book, it gets nowhere. So it's the infallible word of God. And that word legitimate or legitimacy, I'm not sure which way you'll hear it, means um, authority. It's lawfulness. It's justice. And this is, so the Bible's not just true, this is the authority 
by which we are to live our lives and to have our lives governed. God is the ultimate lawgiver. He is the one that has established and placed things and put things in place for our good. We have boundaries around our lives, folks. And, you know, but prideful people like to push boundaries. And when we do that, sometimes we bring our own trouble upon us. So God is a God of lawfulness, of justice, and authority. And our lives are blessed if we follow his ways. So when you hear uh, infallible or legitimate, that is typically what people are talking about. So as we're moving in now into some other practical points, but also manuscript facts about manuscripts and so on and so forth, let me just ask a question out there um, to our listeners. Why don't you believe the Bible? Like, why don't, why don't you believe the whole Bible? Is it because of some of the supernatural stories that are in it? Or did somebody cast a seed of doubt in your mind about the Bible? Have you read the Bible thoroughly enough for yourself to actually truly, honestly pass judgment that it is not the true word of God? I just think that's an important question to ask because as we continue to move forward on some of these really key facts, it's a really important question that you know how to answer for yourself and to wrestle through. You know, we had been giving statistics from George Barna in a couple prior podcasts, and I want to extend that just a little bit further to another statistic that Barna has given us. And it's this, and I'm going to quote him so I don't mess this up. He says, I quote, Americans have historically held the biblical view that God created our world and the life within it. And he gave specific guidelines that promote our well-being when we stay within those boundaries. Those principles were delivered to humanity through the Bible because God was described as the pure, perfect, and just creator whose character and motivations are impeccable. He served as the basis of all truth. We had the knowledge of good and evil, meaning and purpose, and everything else that matters was accessible by studying the Bible and gleaning the truth God had provided for our well-being. And then he goes on. Like every generation before them, this next generation is seeking guidance for how to live, how to understand truth and morality. And they look to the older generation, to parents, mentors, and their professors. But even these groups are rejecting absolute moral truth rooted in God. That is where we are. We have a generation behind us that is looking to us for answers, but our generation is also struggling. And so what do we do about this? Do you know that millennials increasingly find themselves in a culture that from top to bottom rejects God's truth? And it says to them, guess what? You are free to determine your own morality. Look to yourselves, to science, to whatever you can find for guidance on how to live your lives. Do you realize that when they conducted research on millennials, that they found that millennials are growing the nation's fastest growing faith group? Do you know what that faith group is called? The don'ts. Don't know, don't care, don't believe that God exists, despite their claims of being a Christian. I'm sorry, that bothers me. (laughs) 
That bothers me greatly. I don't want my kids being called a don't personally. And so what are we going to do about it? We have to figure out a way to be able to communicate in a healthy way to each other in order to strengthen our faith back into the God of the Bible. And so this whole podcast is essential to that. You know, when we talk about boundaries that God has set, it's for our good. I am not going to let my kids go out into a world without having some kind of structure in their life or a knowing of what is right and wrong. There are rules within my own house, expectations to live by. And I expect my kids to live by them so we can continue in peace and harmony in this house. But I don't do it because I'm trying to control them. I do it because I love them and I care for them. And when you get older, when you get up into the older ages and in the older generation, we've learned some things the hard way. And what we're trying to do with our children, what my parents were trying to do with me, is teach us through some of the lessons they learned themselves the hard way. Well, friends, that's what God's doing through the Bible. He already knows the things that are going to harm us. He already knows those things that can bring destruction, depression, anxiety, and fear. He knows all of that. And he has set up boundaries, some some parameters and saying this far, but don't go any further because guess what? You'll be hurt out here. And so for, for generations of young people, but even my own generation, for us to completely start to ignore the Bible and make up our own rules, we are heading for disaster. If we don't switch gears and get this right, We're heading for disaster. So let me go back to some basics. I'll get off that little soapbox for a minute. So I already told you about that it's a Middle Eastern book and it's it's written by Middle Eastern people in Middle Eastern culture. And when you know that and understand that, we have to consider the culture when reading the books. We have to understand the culture of family and faith and how significant they were then, but how they still are now. There are countries still living with the same pattern of culture that was established biblically, and it's the way that it should be. Just because we've lost track of family and faith and morality in America doesn't make the Bible any less relevant. You see how families are flourishing, how they are living with multiple generations together, and how it's a healthy atmosphere. And then you look at the family culture in America and what has happened. We have the highest divorce rate ever in any generation. And there is such brokenness now within families, with people, between people, between children. So culture is a really important viewpoint to make sure you're reading the Bible from. What can we learn from these cultures that are continually living out these patterns that were set for us? The other thing that's important in the Bible, try to look at each book as a separate entity. God did not give us a topical Bible. And what I mean by that is each book doesn't cover a specific topic. So Genesis doesn't just talk about God and Exodus isn't talking about just Jesus. You know what I mean? 
topics are spread throughout the whole entire Bible. And so he wants us to learn in a very broad way. And God also didn't give us a book full of a bunch of texts, which is how we treat it since chapters and verses were added in, you know, not that long ago, actually. When chapters and verses were added in, what we do now is we pull a text out here and a text out there, and that's how we study the Bible. And we ignore the context altogether. And today, that's why we, quote, maybe look things up where before chapters and verses were added, people had to search out the scriptures. We teach a lot of this in our Bible studies because we really want people to know how to study the Bible well. But since the the Bible is a library, it's ideal, it's book by book, it's ideal to learn book by book, and they all tie together. Every text, which is what we probably call a verse, is in the context of that particular book. And that book is in a context of history. And so when we're quoting things from a prophet, for example, for I know the plans I have for you, so on and so forth from Jeremiah, read what comes before that. Read the book of Jeremiah. Read what's happening in Israel when Jeremiah is writing this book. God gave us the books of the Bible in the context of time and space. And it's important we get both dimensions so we understand at what time he said this and in what place he said this. The time and place give it its meaning because his word was given in real life situations. God was about to exile Israel, but he also made a promise he would bring some of them back. And then he says, for I know I have the prom- I, I know the plans I have for you because he's in a covenant with them. He's, not, he's angry with them, but he's not going to completely do away with them. Do you see what I mean? The context The time and place give it its meaning because his word was given in a specific situation. God was always and is always saying something to a particular situation. And we can can still use that verse as we learn from these situations so that we don't repeat the same mistakes or carry on the same mindsets that brought judgment on people, right? So it's really important to understand that. It's also really important to when you look at the Bible and you know it's divided between an Old and New Testament to understand why. You know, one grouping is the his it's it's grouped by history. So one grouping is the history before Christ, which is the Old Testament, and the other one is the grouping after Christ, the New Testament. And the word testament is important because it means covenant or agreement. So back to covenant, right? It's not just dividing the books up into time, but also the way God made covenant with his people. You know, remember, when someone passes away, what happens? We read a will and testament, right? But you don't have a testament until you have the death of the testator. And so God made covenant with his people through the shedding of blood. So something had to die for that covenant to take effect. Well, in the Old Testament or Old Covenant, it was ratified by the blood of animals. And in the new covenant or new Testament, it was ratified by the blood of Jesus. And I realize some of you may not understand the whole blood component in the Bible. We'll be sure to address that in a future episode. So we've got some basics down. So now let's go a little further. I love how the Bible was written by more than 40 different authors. 
everyone from kings to farmers, fishermen, tent maker, prophets, doctors, scribes, a whole bunch of different people. And yet, even though there's all these authors, there's a unity of purpose and an undivided harmony of thought. I love that. You don't have to be a who's who or a seminary professor to be used by God. And that is so encouraging to someone like me. You know, oftentimes Christians were made to think that, you know, if you've only been a Christian for a couple of years or a couple of months, you can't understand the Bible or who God is. Well, let me just remind you of these people that authored his story. Some of these people, you know, I love how God takes the the simple things of the world to confound the wise. And he even did that through the authorship. And so it's written by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, over what they believe is a period of anywhere from 1,400 to 2,000 years. And that's really something. When you consider that there are no other ancient manuscripts like that, manuscripts that are written by that many people over a period of time with the same unity of purpose and harmony of thought. I love that. And and these manuscripts, as we're moving into manuscripts, these manuscripts, they've been tested and tried. They compiled them. I know you've heard the word canon before. Well, they compiled them into what we now call the canon, which is an interesting word because it comes from a Greek word, which means measuring rod. So to have a Bible, quote, canonized meant that it had been measured by a standard or a test of divine inspiration and authority. That is, that's encouraging. And honestly, I don't think there has been any other holy book that has been tested and tried like the Bible. Now, there's a beautiful scripture that I think we should take note of. And it's from Isaiah 43. And I don't know exactly where, but it asks the question, who can show the former things? And that's a question to ponder. Who can show the former things? As lovely as other holy books are, there is something that they can't do. They cannot show the former things. They may have partial truths and some may have wonderful philosophies, but they don't head anywhere, especially as it pertains to redemption. There is no plan of redemption in other holy books. There is no way to redeem sinful men back to a holy God. Only the Bible offers that. So let's talk about a couple holy books just for a second. The Quran was written in the seventh century. So you're talking hundreds of years after Christ. It contains Allah's revelations to the prophet Muhammad and transmitted through the angel Gabriel. And then it was written down by just, you know, in 20 years or 23 years, somewhere in there. Then you have the Book of Mormon, and that was another revelation. But this one was given by the angel Moroni to a 17-year-old Joseph Smith in 1823, telling him that there were a collection of writings buried in a nearby hill in New York. And it goes on from there. And not even the Hindu Vedas. I don't know if you know this, but those are considered to be eternal. They don't have an origin. In fact, They were passed on orally over the centuries until they were finally apprehended by sages when in a meditative state who eventually wrote them all down. Did you know that? And so none of these, and this is just a few, 
cannot show the former things. What are we talking about? What former things are you talking about, Carol? Things that can be proven. But here's something that does show the former things. We said that the Bible is about the land of Israel. Well, go to the land of Israel. Israel can show the former things. Israel can prove the former things about God through none other than archaeology. If you went to Israel today, you would be blown away at all of the excavations that are taking place because there is evidence of cities, religious practices, empires that came and went throughout that whole tiny little land. And this evidence is mounting constantly because scientists and archaeologists rely on which source to discover these places? The Bible. They are relying on the Bible because the Bible is so precise, so accurate. It literally tells you exactly where a place is, where something happened. They go there and they find it. That's what's incredible. So Israel can show the former things. Another thing that can show the former things that comes through also archaeology and everything else, but also it's it's the prophecies. Let's consider Bible prophecy. Some of these prophecies, there's evidence of their fulfillment in the land of Israel. Do you know that all of the hundreds of prophecies that have been given in the Bible, with the exception of the number that is left that are about the end of the age and Christ's return, every one of them have come true to the precise detail in which they were given, including all of the prophecies concerning Jesus written hundreds of years before his birth. Prophecies that talk about not only his birth, but where he lived, his ministry, his death. So prophecy has come true. And I tell you, friends, the prophecies that are still left to come true, to come to pass, I have faith and fully believe that those are going to come to pass. So we better get reading our Bible. If you want to know what's expected to come upon the earth before Christ's return, you better start reading your Bible. If you want to know what's expected to happen to God's people, start reading your Bible. I mean, I could go on and on about that, but it's just extraordinary to me. And as we're talking about manuscripts, I love the fact that there is more evidence for the Bible's authenticity than any other literature of antiquity. And that too goes along with showing the former things. And this fact always shocks people because in school or in university, we're made to believe that other ancient historical writings are more prolific and reliable than the Bible. At least I was. There's a reason the Bible is kicked out of these establishments, friends. The enemy of our souls does not want people to know the truth. Did you know that the textual evidence or proof of written manuscripts from antiquity, that it's greater for both the Old and New Testaments than any other historical, reliable, ancient document? Did you know that? Can I repeat that? The textual evidence for the Bible, Old and New Testaments, is greater than any other historically reliable ancient document. And scholars are in wide agreement. They attest to the profound care in which both the Old and New Testaments were copied. So we have, think about this, we have over 25,000 manuscripts for the New Testament alone and 10,000 
with 10,000 of that be in the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin version of the Holy Bible from the fourth century. Okay, hold on to that number for just a second. There are copies of the Bible that are written within a generation of authorship. Hold on to that truth for just a second. It is the most highly documented collection of manuscripts from the ancient world. Why aren't we talking about this? Now, I asked you to hold on to a couple of those thoughts, okay? Some of the things I just said may not seem like anything to you at the moment until you realize that the most documented secular work from antiquity behind, well, the Bible's not secular, but the most documented secular work from antiquity is Homer's Iliad. Yes, that Homer's Iliad. The Homer's Iliad that I had to read, that you probably had to read, that my kids had to read, that you with little ones, your kids will read. Homer's Iliad has about 643 copies, with the earliest copies dating around a thousand years after the original. There's fragments, and some of those are quite extensive, but those only number what they think between 1,500 and 2,000. We're still talking 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone, friends. I mean, and the next one behind that from an antiquity standpoint is Homer's Iliad. And for all you history buffs out there, let me give you a couple more. Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars, Remember, those are the wars from 58 BC to 50 BC, written in the first century, right? This is where Julius Caesar waged war against Gaul, and the Gauls were some of their most fierce and bitter enemies. People love to study these wars, but there's believed to be only nine or 10 good copies in existence. Mic drop, right? The earliest evidence we have was copied 900 to 1,000 years after the original. What did I say earlier about the Bible? Some copies are written within a generation of authorship. I mean, come on. Nine to 10 good copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars. What about Livy's Roman history? Okay, Livy was the nickname. It's Titus Livius. Same type, first century uh, BC, um, he, was, he wrote that history of Rome. It was a classic in his lifetime, but then it became kind of a pattern for other historical writing. Anyway, 20 copies. They believed to have 20 copies of Livy's Roman history. What about the annals by Tacitus? He was a Roman historian and a senator. And he, um, the annals are a history of the Roman Empire during the reign of Tiberius to that of Nero. So you're talking during the time of Jesus and after Jesus's death. So what is that, AD 14 to 68? Two copies. Only about half of Tacitus's original 30 books survived, and their survival was dependent on just two manuscripts. The first six books of the annals survived in a single manuscript written in Germany about a thousand years after and the Bible, the New Testament alone, 25,000 manuscripts. What about Thucydides' history? That's popular. It chronicles nearly the 30 years of war and tension between Athens and Sparta, right? They believe eight manuscripts, eight. So New Testament documents, friends, far surpass other ancient writings, even the histories of Herodotus, Plato's Tetralogies, Poetics by Aristotle. I know I'm talking really fast. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to get through this so it's not super long. But in terms of manuscript number and dating, come on, it's impressive. And here we are studying history through copies of manuscripts copied in most cases a thousand years after 
from just a couple of manuscripts and we don't consider the authenticity of the Bible? That is perplexing to me. And, but at the same time, it's a faith builder. I'm sorry, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm happy to tell people it's my source of authority and my source of truth. And let me close with this one. What about the Dead Sea Scrolls? You know, when you're in Israel and you go to Qumran and you're looking at this region where these scrolls were found, it is a true miracle of the living God that these scrolls were found. In 1948, a Bedouin goat herder in Qumran, which is at the northern end of the Dead Sea, was throwing some stones at random and threw one into a cave on a cliff opposite him and heard the sound of breaking clay. And then he took off. He fled, thinking he'd done some damage to someone's property. But nothing happened, so he came back. And then he crawled down the cliff into the cave and found some jars about three feet high. Can you talk about hero of the century? And he looked inside. He finds these ancient scrolls. It's a massive discovery, friends, because there are fragments from almost every book of the Old Testament. But among those many fragments was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. But here's what's so miraculous. Hang with me here. They were just translating the Revised Standard Version of Isaiah at the time, and they halted the translation because the significance was this copy was a thousand years older than the earliest manuscript they already had. The very oldest copy of Isaiah was 900 AD, but this was 100 BC, and it took our knowledge of Isaiah back a thousand years nearer to the original. But this is what's huge. Isaiah contains 19 messianic prophecies, 19 prophecies about Jesus. When all we had was the copy from 900 AD, skeptics always gave the argument that maybe Isaiah was written after Jesus, so it couldn't prove anything. Now, all of a sudden, God's like, aha, I'll show you something. I'll show you I'm true. He provides a scroll of Isaiah from before Jesus's birth that has those 19 prophecies. And so now we have proof that these met some of the messianic prophecies written before the time of Jesus actually came true. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a miraculous discovery. Friends, the Bible is amazing. And still people are choosing to believe other religions and writings and ignore it. And it's astounding to me. And you know, those of you out there who are struggling to read the Old Testament and all you're doing is you've been told to focus on the New Testament which I'm not sure why people are doing that, but it's okay. Either way, I want to encourage you. Do you know that the New Testament confirms the events, even the supernatural events of the Old Testament? Because the New Testament authors quote from at least 320 different passages of the Old Testament. So when you read the New Testament, you're actually taking in a lot of the Old Testament passages. And if you're expecting to read the book of Revelation, you better start reading the Old Testament also, because In order to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament too. It all goes together, friends. It's that united harmony of thought. That's how the Bible works. And so you've got the eyewitness accounts and the contemporaries of Jesus who wrote the New Testament. How even Paul speaks of over 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ when he wrote 1 Corinthians, which dates to be around 55, 56 AD. So you're talking eyewitnesses still alive after the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And so it's just fun learning some fun pieces like this, folks, because we're just trying to encourage you in your faith. It's okay to be a Christian and read your Bible. It's okay to live from a Christian worldview. That's what we're called to do. And I'm closing with this. The last point I want to make, let's not forget Israel as one of the most important points. Israel is something most Christians truly don't understand. We are actually going to do a podcast on Israel so you do understand. But we spoke about the Bible being a Middle Eastern book, right? We went through all that again, third time now. But what we didn't discuss, well, we did a little, but not in detail, was that everything takes place in the land known as Israel. So friends, like it or not, Israel is centric to our studying the Bible. So I suggest you getting a good map of Israel, try to start understanding the layout of the events. With the exception of time in Egypt and a couple other places, everything you read about takes place in this land. Well, now let me paint a picture for you. God made covenant with Israel. I'm going to give you a super duper duper cliff note version of this because our podcast on Israel go into more specifics. But God made covenant with Israel. And his covenant still stands. Together, they made an agreement of what God would do for them if they would honor and obey him. And they experienced blessings and curses based on their obedience. Well, that was Israel's problem. They didn't always hold up their end of the covenant. And they always tended to act out in rebellion. In fact, the books of the prophets are all about Israel's rebellion. Some of them speak of the judgment, impending judgment. You're going to go into exile. Uh, God's going to bring a nation against you. Prophecy after prophecy after prophet after prophet. Decades of prophesying for them to repent and return. Then you've got prophets that speak of comfort. Okay, you're in trouble now. You are going to go into exile, but some of you will return back to your land. So there's a prophecies of comfort. Then you have other prophets that are going to speak of how God would restore them to the land permanently. It's about their future. And so that's what the prophets did. Well, what happened? Israel didn't listen. They got in trouble. They went into exile. They, some of them came back into the land and, and they stayed there. Well, we talked about Bible, Bible prophecy being accurate, right? Well, in 70 AD, so after Jesus, Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, as predicted by Jesus 40 short years earlier. But they looted the temple treasures, they took people away as slaves, and the few that were left experienced one final blow around 130 AD in the Bar Kokhba revolt, we'll cover this later, in which the remaining citizens were then kicked out. So all of a sudden, Israel finds itself in the first century no longer Israel. The people are gone. The temple is gone. Everything is gone, right? They're gone. They are completely and totally out of their land for 2,000 years. Now, hold that thought. Pre-prophecy, per-prophecy, not pre-prophecy, per-prophecy. We talked about the prophets a minute ago. So long as the people were not in their land, the place would essentially be a wasteland. It didn't matter if the Romans were in there, the Byzantines, the Mamluks, the Crusaders, the Ottomans. It didn't matter. If God's people weren't in that land, it was going to be a wasteland, a dust bowl, almost uninhabitable. Read quotes by Mark Twain from 1867. I'll let you do that on your own about how he describes Israel when he traveled through there. Basically the same thing I just said. Can't see a people, can't see a tree, can't see a shrub. 
And empire after empire, nation after nation, conquered Jerusalem, ruled over Israel, all those ones I mentioned, Romes, Byzantines, Mamluks, all those. And guess what? They all came and they all went and they're all gone. But one, Israel came back to their land. They were out of their land for 2,000 years. It was prophesied by the prophets that Israel would come back into their land. And when they came in this next time, it would be permanent. It's truly one of the biggest evidence of the evidences of the legitimacy of God's word, proof beyond proof. And this happened only in 1948, just around the corner, behind us around the corner. And it was prophesied, guess what? That when they returned to the land, the land would flourish again. So when the people are out of the land, it's a disaster. When the people came back, come back to the land, it's going to flourish. And if you've been to Israel, it is flourishing beyond comprehension. Flowers, vegetation, water, commerce. God said nations will be drawn to your light. And that is what happened. Nations are drawn to Israel for whatever reason. I tell you, it's a miracle when they became a state again, because since that time, the country has literally come back from the dead. Those dry bones have come back to life. They lead the world in medicine. They lead the world in technology. They lead the world in so much industry. The apple of God's eye is always in the news because God is fulfilling his prophecies with Israel and he's letting the whole world see it if they're paying attention. And he's doing it through the land and he's doing it through the people. And it absolutely stuns me and amazes me that we don't talk about this in church. We have an eyewitness account right in front of us, fulfilled prophecy, and yet many of us cannot even see it. That's incredible to me. Never in the history of any country has a nation been cast out, forgotten, wiped out, then return and return with its same name, its original God-given laws, its original identity, and its original language. Hey, you know what? Regardless of what you think about Israel or any of that, it's a miracle and it's evidence that nobody can dispute. I don't know. There's so much. There's so much, friends. And and I, I'm missing Mallory right now because she brings so much insight. But hopefully we've given you just a start, just something where you can start digging back into the Word. And maybe we just want you to revisit God's Word. Go back. Whatever disappointed you, whatever things you're struggling with, we want to help or find someone that, that wants to help you. Maybe somebody's already reached out to you. Either way, please revisit the Bible. We want to give you these key pieces of information to digest, but friends, here's our encouragement. We're up against an antichrist system of the world, and the greatest resource we have to come against it is at our fingertips, and it's called the Bible. And I'm telling you, without it, we'll perish. I hope this blessed you today. We want to encourage you and keep you moving in faith. And if you have any questions or comments or anything, please Email us at preparetheway at jcmcolorado.com or visit us at jeremiahscall.com. Oh, not jeremiahscall.com, jeremiahscall.org. Sorry about that. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. Until next time, take care.